0: Well, uh, welcome along to five o'clock here at CBTB. It's lovely to see you. Uh, you may not know me. My name's Des Smith. I'm one of the student ministers here, and I normally go to six thirty. Um, now, what I'd like us to do before we get too much older is, I just want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine not that you're congregation members here in a Sydney church, but rather, I want you to imagine that you are servants in a medieval palace. You open the door, creaky old door and you're peering in on a party that the king and queen are holding. They're actually hosting a play for some friends of theirs, some other noble men and women and as you watch this play unfold, well, it's quite confusing. You peek through the door as you see them all arranged. There's the king and the queen. They're all the noblemen and women in front of them. Off in the distance there is the king's nephew and a beautiful young woman sitting next to him and the play begins. Another king and queen walk onto the stage and they're having a conversation. The king says to the queen something along the lines of, and I'll paraphrase, Darling, I've loved you for so long. We've been married for so many years and yet I fear that I may die soon. And my one wish for you is this, that after I'm gone that you marry a good man, someone who will love you and care for you. Now the queen is shocked by this news that he thinks he might die. And says to him, no, no, look, you'll not die. Why do you think that would happen? But if you did, I will never marry again. I would never betray you like that. I will remain a widow and faithful to you forever. Now the king responds to her, darling, that's lovely of you to say and I believe you for the moment. But when I'm gone, well, maybe the memory of me will fade and you will marry. But for the moment I'm tired, please leave me, let me sleep. And she goes... And he lies down and it turns out that maybe he knows something more about his death than he's originally let on because another man creeps on to the stage, takes out a flask of poison, pours it into his ear and kills the king before he creeps off. Confused? Well, well may you be. Really the play doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't make particular sense particularly because at that point as you are this medieval servant, the king in the real life actually suddenly stands up, calls the play to a halt and storms off. Particularly you notice that the nephew is paying particularly close attention to the king as he does so. What on earth is going on? Well, let me tell you. The scene I've described to you isn't just any old scene. I've actually made you a character in Hamlet. Hamlet. And what you've just seen is part of Act 2, Scene 2. You've just seen a play which has been put on by Hamlet, who's the nephew sitting off to the side of the king, called The Mousetrap. Now, to you as the casual onlooker, it doesn't make any sense because you don't know the context. But Hamlet and the king know exactly what it means because they know exactly what that play is about. Because the play that Hamlet puts on, the mousetrap that I've just described to you, mimics reality. You see, in truth, Hamlet is the son of the king who has been murdered and Claudius, the king who stormed off, is the king who's ordered their execution. The play exposes the king in a story and warns that king that Hamlet knows all about it. The crowd may be slightly confused, you're totally baffled, but Hamlet and the king, they know exactly what's going on. Now, the parable of the talents that we've just had read to us is exactly that kind of thing. It's Jesus' own mousetrap. It's Jesus' own parable that reveals something, exposes and warns his listeners, particularly the religious elite. You see, on the face of it, it's just a story, isn't it? It's just a story about a rental dispute that's gone horribly out of hand. But in its context, we see its explosive impact. Just like the mousetrap, Jesus' parable mimics reality. Israel is about to kill its own king and exposes his listeners and warns them about the consequences of doing that. So, we're going to look at this parable in three parts tonight. In its context, the parable itself and some of its implications for us. So, if you're a note taker, there are three headings to have. First of all, the context. Well, I don't know if you've been living under a rock uh, recently. If you have, you probably don't know that it's an election year. However, for the rest of us who have been living outside of rocks, we do know that it's an election year. And if you've been reading the Sydney Morning Herald, you would have seen every week, every day, there seems to be a fresh opinion poll. We all know that the swinging voting as to who who will eventually win—will it be Rudd? Will it be Howard? And all those opinions are basically about one thing: whom do we think should have authority to rule Australia? Who should be the ruler? and opinion is divided. Now Jerusalem is in the grip of a similar contest. Who should have the authority to rule Israel? You see, the status quo for years and years and years has been this, the current leaders, the priests, the rabbis, the elders. But now there is a new contender, the popular preacher, Jesus from Nazareth, who seems to have built up in only three years an enormous public following which has reached something of a fever pitch at the point in which we come to the story now. Now, Jesus has just told the parable of the talents which is the parable that we heard preached on last week and now he's heading resolutely towards Jerusalem. And we see here now Luke gives us, before we get to the parable before us tonight, three opinion polls, three scenes about how different people view Jesus' authority, view the issue of who should be in charge. You can see the first one there, opinion poll number one, in verses thirty seven and thirty nine. Let read with me now. Jesus is entering in to Jerusalem, he's coming riding on a donkey, and it says this When he came, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus enters Jerusalem in an enormous fanfare. It's not just a small thing. Think of it more like a ticker tape parade. Remember when the Australians won the ashes and they marched through the streets of the city. People were in, in awe of them. People were lining the streets ten deep, screaming their praises. There's every chance they probably stand it up a chant and that's exactly what we see the Israelites doing here, starting up a chant, singing a song, singing apart from one of their favourite songs, Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a psalm about God defending Israel from its enemies, declaring that Jesus is God's king. It's pretty clear who Israel thinks has authority here. But there is opposition. Look in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You can't just go around accepting praise like that. We're in charge here but they're swept away by public opinion. Well, what of the next opinion poll that Luke's give us? Well, it's there in verses 45 to 48. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he clears out the temple of all the moneylenders, you're probably familiar with that story, and he then begins teaching. Now, it says there in verse 47 that the leaders want to kill him but they can't because, again, public opinion is behind him. They think that he is God's king. Then finally things reach ahead. We see it there in chapter 20 verses 1 to 8. The issue of Jesus' authority comes to such a head that there's finally a public showdown. Turn with me to chapter 20 verses 1 to 2. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority to drive these people out of the temple and start teaching authoritatively from God's house? And Jesus comes back with a brilliant reply. Verse 3. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? It is a brilliant reply. It's fantastic when you see someone asked a question which they then almost effortlessly seem to turn against its asker. Great politicians do it all the time. Winston Churchill is famous for his quick and witty reposts. He once came out of uh, Number 10 Downing Street and uh, he was a little the worse for wear, maybe he had had one too many drinks and a lady called out to him, Mr Churchill, you're drunk. And he shot right back, yes madam, and you are ugly but in the morning I shall be sober. Mr Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd put poison yeah. in your coffee. And yes, madam, and if I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> Even our own Robert Menzies could come back with, rapo- with witty reposts. One wag, when he was giving an election speech, called out, Bob, I wouldn't vote for you if you were the angel Gabriel. Mate, if I were the angel Gabriel, you'd not be in my constituency. And here we see Jesus doing something similar. He turns it back on its head. It's a brilliant reply. Because when he asks them how John the Baptist got his authority, well, they're stuck because John the Baptist had been baptising people. He'd been baptising people as a symbol of them turning away from their sinful way of life and turning away to God, God's way of life. But he hadn't just baptised people, he'd baptised Jesus and he baptised Jesus after he, had told, uh, after he had told people that one would come after him who would baptise with the Holy Spirit. And it was at John's baptism of Jesus that the Holy Spirit came on Jesus. It was almost as if the preaching of the gospel had a baton passed on from John the Baptist to Jesus. It clearly came with divine authority. And so the leaders are caught. They can't say that John the Baptist came with divine authority because, well, given the circumstances of the baptism, that means that Jesus comes with divine authority. But they can't say, oh, he just came with human authority because, well, the people would be in an uproar. Public opinion would yet again come into, come into sway. And so they just cop out and say, oh, I don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I won't ask you your question about authority either. But he doesn't answer it, not because he's trying to avoid the question, rather because he's got a much better tactic to move on to the offensive by telling the parable that we've had read to us tonight. Read with me there in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, as soon as his listeners heard this, they must have pricked up their ears. They must have realised that they needed to pay attention because Jesus had sent something very significant that must have made it clear to them that he wasn't just telling a story. You see, he doesn't say a man planted an orchard or a man built a house. He said, a man planted a vineyard and for any Jew living back then when they heard the word vineyard they immediately thought Israel, God's blessings to Israel. All throughout the Old Testament the term vineyard had been a a synonym for God's blessing on Israel in much the same way that I don't need to say the word Australia to let you know what country I'm talking about. I could just say down under or if I want to refer to the great state of Tasmania I don't need to say Tasmania. I can just say the Apple Isle. You know exactly what I mean. They immediately know that there's something about this parable that is about them. It mimics reality, just like the mousetrap. Let me read on, verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. The owner sends three servants to collect the rent, but no, the tenants aren't having any part of that. They refuse to pay. Not only do they refuse to pay, they beat up the servants who are sent, uh, who are sent to collect it, and they send them packing. And again, any listener would realize that that is more than just a story, that mimics reality. He's talking about the prophets. Israel constantly rejected prophets. They knew that they constantly rejected prophets. Jeremiah had told them that they would reject the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7 reads this, When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, This is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord, its God, or responded to correction. Truth has perished, it has vanished from their lips. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. See, things are really hotting up right here now as Jesus tells them this parable. But it gets even hotter in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Now that of course makes some sense. If you own a debt, it's one thing just to send a servant to go and collect it. They may or may not be respected but if you send your son, surely they will get some kind of respect. If I had Foxtel, which I don't, and I was behind in my payments, if someone just sends me a dirty little letter saying please pay up, well I can easily throw that in the bin. If Lachlan Murdoch comes knocking on my door and says "Ah, pay up please, I'm not exactly going to treat him badly because he is the son of the boss. And of course here that also mimics reality. Jesus is the Son and anyone who's listening carefully to him would realise that. What's particularly interesting is the phrase he uses I will send my Son whom I love. Now it doesn't at first seem significant and yet in the context of this whole showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders it's pivotal because Jesus has just boxed them into a corner by describing what happened at John's baptism and Something else happened at John's baptism though as well which everyone heard. God said to Jesus in a loud voice for everyone to hear, You're my son whom I love. You see he uses exactly the same expression here. Jesus is speaking about himself and yet the tenants don't listen. Verse 14 and 15. But when the tenants saw him they talked the matter over this is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now it's not exactly clear here exactly why they seem to think that killing the son will get them written into the father's will and why exactly they should inherit the vineyard. It's probably mostly, most likely that it's just pointing out the absurdity of the whole situation. The tenants have just got desperate by now. The sun's come, they've killed all the other servants, they finally think in a last grasp for power that if they kill the sun it might just be theirs and yet it's ridiculous. And again that mimics reality. Jesus has said, Israel has killed the prophets. Every messenger from God who's ever come to them they have destroyed and now they will destroy me. But they will not destroy me Without consequences. Look at verses 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God will judge Israel for killing its king and will give its blessings to people other than Israel, to Gentiles, to people like you and me. Now I'm sure you can imagine, as I hope you're imagining yourself now amongst that crowd but by this point you could probably just about hear a pin drop. Jesus has just given a survey of the entire Bible and, telling his, and has told his listeners that they killed the prophets, that they'll kill him and that God will punish them for taking away his blessing. Now, the crowd seems to have some idea of what's going on. They know enough to gasp and say, no, surely that won't happen. You can see that there in verse 16. When the people heard this they said, may this never be. And yet Jesus responds to them with a crushing blow. So, Israel, you think you can have your blessings uh, just without, regardless of what you do? You think your blessings can't be taken away? Then why have your own scriptures said that that could happen all along? Verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. He quotes another psalm, this time a psalm about a a Messiah figure who is surrounded by his enemies, who is ignored as being insignificant by them but whom God will in fact raise up to conquer them. And he uses incredibly vivid imagery to describe this, that of a building site with someone building a large stone building and who takes a piece of stone as an offcut and just throws it onto the side, ignores it as a piece of scrap and yet it's that piece of scrap but God will actually put at the centre of that building, at the centre of God's salvation. And those people who ignore it will do so to their own destruction. They'll fall on it and they'll be crushed. And here's the delicious irony about it. The psalm he quotes is exactly the same psalm that the people have been calling out to him, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, you believe that I'm the king, says Jesus? Do you really understand that I'm the king? Well, understand this, that very same psalm says that if you reject me, you'll be crushed. It is difficult to think of a more inflammatory thing for Jesus to say. Where the people have only some idea of what's going on, the Pharisees understand exactly. Look at verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. The only reason they don't act then and there is because the people still support him. But we don't need to read too much further on into Luke to realise that that public opinion falters. Public opinion's fickle. We only need to look at an opinion poll in the Sydney Morning Herald to realise that. And it's ultimately not just the leaders but the whole crowd whom Jesus is speaking against here. When he entered Jerusalem he said as much. Look with me at chapter 19 verses 43. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and as he looks onto them, not just at the leaders but the whole city, he bursts into tears and says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. The people didn't recognise Jesus. Jesus, the only one with authority, God's King, had come to his people and that very same people didn't recognise who he was. They didn't realise. Or if they realised, they just rejected him. And that's exactly what happens not a week later, a week after they've been singing his praises, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, out of those same throats are coming the words, crucify him. crucify him, the king. Now, what are the implications of this for us? Well, let me just bring out four points, four reflections. First of all, I think we need to pay attention to the way in which we read the Bible, don't we? It's so easy sometimes to read the Bible in an almost casual or uh, not particularly paying attention to the details kind of a way. We need to be careful readers of the Bible to understand it. You see, as I hope we've seen tonight, if we we read this parable outside of its context, We're little better off than those servants whom you pretended to be looking in on the mousetrap, not really knowing what's going on. It's only when we see the context of these things that we fully understand what it's about. And if you're anything like me, that can be really difficult to do. I don't live in a culture, a church culture, a national culture of reading the Bible really carefully and closely. I have my quiet times and I read it devotionally and that's good and I think it's unrealistic to think that we'll always dot all the I's and cross all the T's every time we open up the Bible. You could never do it. You'd probably never end up going to work in the morning. You'd just be stuck at your desk. And yet at the same time I would hate to see us be a church that never did the hard work and never did the hard work simply because it was hard work. Because it is. Reading the Bible isn't always every minute of the day uplifting stuff. Sometimes it's really hard, intellectually challenging work. Sometimes it's emotionally difficult because it says things that frankly I just don't like. Sometimes we just don't seem to have enough time to look in the context of these things and yet we miss out on so much if we don't do that, if we don't occasionally sit down and just look through the references, get out the concordance, dig into the Bible and see in its depths. Is it any surprise why we'll only have a surface understanding of what God's about. Sometimes I find it difficult to understand why the psalmist, Psalm 119, goes on and on and on about how he delights in the law of the Lord. And I think to myself, psalmist, have you ever read the law? Have you read Leviticus? How can you delight in that? It's so boring. And when I really look into it, when I see it in its context, it is delightful. We miss out on so much when we don't see that. But a second thing I think this warns us of, or a second thing this calls our attention to, is that when we carefully read the Bible, we actually realise that some parts of it actually really aren't that much about us. When I read this parable, I'm always trying to think, well, where do I fit in? Which character am I? Am I the Pharisee? Am I the people? Am I in Jesus' role, the hero? Well, friends, unfortunately, in this parable, we barely even write a mention, unless you're Jewish. We're actually the others in verse 16. This parable is primarily about the relationship between God and his covenant people, Israel. Now, there's a couple of things to draw from that, isn't there? We need to recognise, and I don't think we do it enough, the special place that Jewish people have in God's plans. I think the Bible's picture is one in which God views Jews and Jewish people in a particular way that he doesn't view us, that he cares and longs for them in a way that he doesn't quite care and long for us. For instance, all of Romans 9 to 11 is a discussion of that where he describes Israel as a plant and us as just people who are grafted into the side. We're not the central characters in this parable. In some ways we're not even the central characters of the Bible. Surely we must pray... For our Jewish community here in Australia, mustn't we? Two hundred thousand Jews in Australia who don't know the gospel. We must be careful to not forget that. To pray for them. But it also means, doesn't it, that we need to be careful of always looking for the application that directly applies to me. Because that's very often what I do when I read the Bible. I just look at it particularly for the application points for me. In the end the Bible all becomes about me and I sometimes wonder if that's part of a larger culture in churches where we've personalised Christianity so much that it's all about God and me and there are other people who just happen to be around. I wonder how much of that thinking has permeated into the way we treat one another in Bible studies, in church, in fellowship outside. There are some parts of the Bible that just aren't really about me but they are about the person sitting next to me. How can I encourage that person with this word of God that has not nearly as much to say to me as it does to them? Surely that's something we've got to think about. But one final thing that we need to remember is that we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? Because we're the others. We're the people to whom God has given his blessing now. We are the people who now have the fruits of the vineyard so to speak and even though we had no right to it God has given it to us. It's one thing to have God make a promise to you like he did to Israel and then fulfil it. It is quite another to be a guest in another person's house. It is quite another to think that in some ways we never had these promises made to us and yet we have the promises of God Do you know how we describe elsewhere in the Bible? Ephesians says that before Jesus came, we had no hope in the world. We were aliens and strangers to God's promises. But now, through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God that we could never otherwise have had. I forget that too often. I wonder if you do as well. God has been so good to us in what He has done through sending his son Jesus to die on the cross so that all humanity can be right with him. That is something that has got to inform the way we think and act and pray. So let me pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done through Jesus. Thank you though, thank you that although no one in this world has deserved forgiveness from you, that you've given it to us. But particularly there's a way in which we as non-Jewish people have obtained salvation even more by the skin of our teeth, that you have grafted us in. I pray please help us never to forget just how good that is, just how amazing it is to be right with you when you never promised that to us. And yet, dear Father, please help us also to, to not forget our place in salvation history but to reach out to your people Israel the Jewish people around us so that they might come in and be saved. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.